0: Is rule sixty-two. You know. <laughs> Gonna wear my flowers since they took away the balloons, and I didn't get any balloons. Liz said he ran out of hot air. I said, Nope, I'm here.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm Bilson. I'm an alcoholic. By the grace of God, I'm sober today. And that's the single most important thing that I will share with you during this time we have together this morning, that it is by the grace of a loving God and His gift of you to me that I have awakened for the last 5,495 mornings without a hangover, and that is a miracle. Now, I don't want you to spend the next hour trying to figure out what (laughs) the... That computes to July 26, 1982. Oh, and I'm also sober by fantastic tremendous, stupendous sponsorship. I had to say that because Dr. Paul is my sponsor. <laughs> he is a stupendous sponsor. We have an interesting sponsorship. We, we see each other four or five times a year, and uh, we talk on the phone every week or so, but uh, more often than anything else, we email back and forth. And uh, if if you think it won't keep you straight, sending your little 10th step thoughts out onto the internet. <laughs> if anybody ever intercepts one of those, some of those things, it's going to be. <laughs> and of course, Paul doesn't know it that, that it many, many times, and this goes to something he was talking about yesterday in his um, uh, discussion on sponsorship. He, don't, he does not know how many, mi- I have written him many more letters than he has received. Because some of these things, when I, when I start writing them down and I get about a page and a half into it and I'm ready to hit that button that says send and I read back over what I've said, I say, no way, that's stupid. <laughs> I, I get my own answer when I start writing it down. So I recommend to anybody, you know, write things down and you get answers that way. I, I do have to share one story with you. Uh, a, a month or two ago, uh, Paul and Max got back from um, uh, down in Mexico, and Paul was not happy at all with his talk he had made, and 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 was sort of uh, grumbling about that. And he was also they had they their redoing their floors in their house, and they had the floors all torn up, and he couldn't find anything, uh, couldn't get to his computer, so we were having to resort to that old-fashioned thing called a phone. And uh, his computer was messed up because he had to take it into the store. There's a little voice in my head saying, "Bill, say it." I said, no, 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 no. So he, he says, the computer's got to take it in, and, and the, the computer guy messed it all up and was giving him a hard time, and the little boy says, Bill, say it. Said, no. And he goes on talking about all this. Finally, I said, I've got to do it. Paul, you need to read page 449.
1: <laughs>
0: Before I go any further this morning, I want you to meet my, my wife, Marlene. Marlene, stand up. Now, that sweet, beautiful, innocent-looking thing, to look at her, you wouldn't think she could cause alcoholism, would you? <laughs> she did, I tell you. <coughs> I grew up in a little town in North Georgia, and we had a, a lot of interesting people in our little bitty town. Uh, one, we, uh, one fellow that lived in our little town was named Mr. Peak. Mr. Peake was rich. I mean, he was worth millions. And Mr. Peak was a little strange. he would go out on Saturday afternoons and walk up and down the streets of our little town, handing out nickels to everybody. Everybody came to hand out nickels. you know I know because I, I used to make sure I passed him about eight times you know and and, and Mr. Peak would also around christmas uh, around the, the end of July, would put out all of his Christmas decorations and he'd decorate the tree in the front yard and he'd light them all up at night and I, I said to, to my mother one time I said, you know Mr. Peake's crazy. She said, no, he's not crazy. He's just eccentric. He's just eccentric. I said, oh, okay. Well, we had a uh, another guy in town, named Mr. Kaysen. Mr. Kaysen was uh, strange, too. Uh, Mr. Kaysen would go downtown. Uh, walk, well, you know, it, it was only about a mile from one end of town to the other. And, you know, he'd, he'd go downtown in his bathrobe and just walk around downtown. And... uh Mr. Kaysen would, uh, would, would, always. he drank a lot, and, and he would walk around with his uh, bottle with tinfoil wrapped around it as though people wouldn't know what it was. <laughs> and, and I said to my mom, I said, uh, Mom, I guess Mr. Kaysen's eccentric, too. She said, No, Mr. Kaysen's a nut. I said, Well, how come Mr. Peak is eccentric, but Mr. Cason is a nut. Not nut, nut. See, I'm from the South. She said, Mr. Cason doesn't have enough money to be eccentric. (laughs) Well, through the years, folks, I became a nut. I think I was actually born a nut. Uh, We read in the first step, our lives had become unmanageable. That's not true with me. My, my life was never manageable. It didn't become unmanageable. I was born with it unmanageable. And I know today I was born a nut. Uh, I also know I was born with the disease of alcoholism. I only became an alcoholic when I mixed alcohol with the disease that was already there at the age of 15. But even as a kid, i did do crazy things. I, uh, one, one day when I was about three years old, my mother suddenly realized I was missing. She couldn't find me anywhere. And, and she put out the alarm and started running up and down the streets. As I said, it was only about a mile from one end of our little town to the other. And she got a call from a lady who lived just off the square in downtown and said, Billy's here. And my mother said, my God... I'll, I'll come get him," and she said. "Well, you better hurry," he said. Uh, he 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 said he was on the way to the swimming pool, which happened to be in the other direction. But uh, and and my mom got there, and it, it seems that I had left the house on my way to the swimming pool, dragging a towel behind me and nothing else. <coughs> <laughs> Bare they say that your, chi- your childhood, the things that happened in your, your childhood set the tone for your life. <laughs> on up into my years of drinking, into my 20s, and well on into my 30s, I had this thing about when I would be at conferences or conventions or whatever, staying in a hotel, going into the bar and getting sloshed to the gills and um, going out to take a swim. <laughs> bare ass didn't even bother with a towel. <laughs> uh, it would get me in trouble. I had an incident one year when I was... Um, uh, I'm in the broadcasting business, have been all of my life since I was 13 years old. And I had an incident when um, uh, for one, uh, a couple of year period I was the... I the, the, uh, had the honor of being the president of the National Academy of Television Arts and Sciences, the outfit that presents the Emmy Awards, and one year we had the Emmy Awards ceremony. And uh, the host of the Emmy Awards ceremony was uh, uh, a fellow of some renown who has a late night show. Uh, so that I don't break his anonymity, his, initial, or his name is David L. <laughs> and David L. was the host. And we started about 2 o'clock in the afternoon with the rehearsal for the show. And of course, Dave and I were fortifying. And uh, we fortified all afternoon, and then we had the banquet, and I fortified some more. And then while the show was going on, uh, we had the tables all across in the front, and we fortified some more. After all, it was very, very hot under all those lights. And uh, by the time the telecast was over at about 11 o'clock tonight, we were fortified (laughs) and hot. Those tuxedos were just hanging wet. And so uh, David and I walked out of the, the, the big ballroom where it was onto the, the, the deck of this hotel where the, the show was. And boy, that swimming pool sure did look. So David and I just both went and dived right in the swimming pool, tuxes and all. And somebody said, um, you guys are going to ruin those tuxedos. And I was three years old again. How many of y'all in this room can say you've been skinny dipping with David L.? So, <laughs> so as I said, I've always been a nut. Um, and, but sometimes it, 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 was, it was not I was a nut, I was, I was a stupid nut. Uh, when I was, I don't know, maybe three or four years old also, my parents, uh, one Easter, gave me a pretty Easter basket with about five little pretty cute little different colored baby chicks in there. And they were just you know the cutest little things, you little fuzzy things, and you'd play with them and and uh the, the little ch- and I would take them out in the yard and and try to make them line up in march and things like that and and do too well uh and But the little chicks started growing a little bit, and as they grew, I was out in the yard one day, Dad was over mowing the lawn and and uh, uh I was there playing with my chicks, and I noticed that that little thing on top of their head was kind of beginning to grow up and it was flopping over a little bit. And I thought, you know, they need a haircut. Well, I went in the house and got the scissors and was going to give them a haircut, but they wouldn't be still. They kept hopping and jumping and getting out of my hand. I was an ingenious little fellow, so what I did is I dug a little trench in the ground and I put them in there with their little head sticking out. And while Daddy was trimming the hedge, and the lawnmower was just sitting there, I gave him a haircut. And then I cried for a week because I didn't know where their heads went. I was hell on pets. We we had, we we had a we had a little cocker spaniel puppy that I loved. I love that little puppy. He was my he was my baby. But in the hot summertime in the south, you know it gets hot and it's humid. And 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 uh, and 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 Blackie was just <laughs> And I I loved that little dog. So I put him in the deep freeze so he he wouldn't be so hot. Thank God Mom found him heard him whining and howling in there. So, you know, when when I started doing insane crazy things when I when I started drinking that wasn't anything new I was already a nut I did not have my first drink until I was 15 years old I always did nutty crazy things but all of the things that I did especially in school were were to get attention they I wanted I wanted to be loved I wanted to be liked but I never could figure out how because no matter what I did I always felt like the outsider on the outside looking in I always felt like everybody knew something that I didn't know. Everybody had little secrets that they weren't telling me. Uh, I could be in the middle of a circle of people all the way around me and I would feel like I was on the outside looking in. Did not belong. Didn't belong anywhere. Um, but when I was 15 years old, one Saturday night a group of friends said, Hey, you want to go over to South Carolina with us and get some beer? So We live right on the state line. We lived in a dry county but we could go right across the Savannah River into South Carolina, and um, there was a little beer joint over there that if you could pull up behind it, honk the horn three times, a guy would come out the back door, and if you could see over the steering wheel, he'd send you beer. (laughs) And I don't know if it was peer pressure or curiosity or what. I said yes, and we we went across the state line, and and we got uh, a, a case of beer and came back and sat on the old banks of the muddy Savannah River, and someone popped open a beer and handed it to me, and I took a great big gulp of it. And it was the most vile, putrid, god-awful tasting stuff I had ever tasted in my entire life. Only drank six that night. (laughs) I got drunk that night. I got sick that night. But somewhere between the second and the third beer, something happened. And I don't think I probably need to tell the majority of you people what that was. That little bell went off. And suddenly little Billy Sanders wasn't afraid anymore. And then at that instant, I became smarter and wittier and sexier and handsomer than I had ever been in my entire life or anybody I had ever known in my entire life. <laughs> and In that moment, all that fear went away. And in that instant, I guess subconsciously or unconsciously, I said, I have found a friend that's going to be my friend for the rest of my life. And it almost was. Uh, My drinking career was to last 22 years. And uh, it was to be a wild and woolly one. Now, I didn't drink that much in high school uh, because I don't know how many of you grew up in a small town. But if you grew up in a small town, you know there's one thing they're real short on, and that's anonymity. Everybody knows everybody else's business. Everybody knows who the town Drunk is. See, I I didn't think we had but one. He was that nut, Tom Kaysen. But I found out later there was a lot more than that. But when I went off to college, then it all began. And I drank my way through college. A lot of people have great fond memories of their college careers. I wish I did. By then, I was beginning to suffer from what they call down-home spells. We call them blackouts. 1962, that was a blackout. Um, a lot of crazy things in college. It's just, um, and, and by then everybody knew I was a nut. Um, a lot of insane behavior that was fun, but a lot of it wasn't. One Saturday night in an apartment, drinking and, and drunk and insane, I, 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 I grabbed an old antique gun out of a gun collection of the guy's apartment that we were in and started waving it around and acting insane and you know, clowning. And, and uh, my roommate stood up and threw up his hands, and I pointed the gun at him, and I pulled the trigger, and there was a sound like thunder. In a moment, my roommate was lying on the floor in front of me in a pool of blood. At an Athens, Georgia hospital a few hours later, they were to tell us that my roommate would live but that he would never walk again. The bullet had severed his spine. strange thing happened in a hospital room in the early hours of the next morning in Athens, Georgia. My roommate looked up from a hospital bed and put his hand on my arm and said, Bill, for God's sake, don't blame yourself. It was an accident. could just as easily have been the other way around. Please, don't blame yourself. He forgave me immediately. But I didn't forgive myself for more than 20 years. Because, you see, I didn't know how. It was not until you people put the tools into my hand, those magical, beautiful, wonderful tools called the fourth, the fifth, the sixth, the seventh, the eighth, and ninth step, that I was able to find peace and to find forgiveness. My only answer for it was to crawl deeper into the bottle and to set up house. Not long after that the the, the pressure of all going on became too much to bear and By going to the doctors at the University of Georgia and telling them I was having trouble sleeping and seeing doctors on rotating days, I amassed a supply of sleeping pills and then uh, one Friday when my new roommate was headed home to show his family his new car, I took all those little pills out of the drawer and watched him drive out of sight and then sat down on the side of the bed and dumped them all out as to what was later determined to be between 50 and 60 sleeping pills and swallowed them down and turned out the lights and pulled up the cover. For more than 20 years, I believe that it was a huge coincidence that my roommate's new car conked out at the city limits of Athens, and he came back into that dormitory room and found me, saw the bottles, knew the state I'd mind I'd been in, and called an ambulance. Oh, I love that word, coincidence. I mean, it's just, but I also like the definition that I've heard in this fellowship that I use today, and that is a coincidence is a miracle in which God chooses to remain anonymous. Incidentally, my roommate's brand-new car, when it was taken back to the dealership, the first time they tried to crank it, it cranked and cranked every time after that. They never did find anything wrong with it. Go figure. It was also after that that family, friends, and doctors, after that little bout with the pills, decided that old Bill needed help. Now, that's not like help. Help is when you need a little assistance with something. When you need help... Beth, you are in deep (laughs) doo-doo. Beth started talking about deep doo-doo stuff, and I said, yeah, when you get there, that's when you need help. And the help they decided I needed was to go see a shrink. And for the next 17, 18 years, I have no idea how many of those individuals I went to see. paid a lot of money, spent a lot of time with them. Walked out of every one of their offices damning them because not one single one of them ever did one single thing to help me. Sometimes I hate the fact that we got this thing called rigorous honesty because it forces me to admit that one or more of them might have been able to help me if I'd ever once told them the truth. You know, invariably somewhere around the third or fourth question I ask you, do you think you might have a drinking problem? My standard answer is no, I drink fine, and they go off treating something else. (laughs) <laughs> went to a bunch of those people. One of them, one of them I went to, was a very famous person, a very famous shrink. Uh, he and his partner uh, had had a very famous patient at one time, and they had made a movie about her life called The Three Faces of Eve. And 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 uh, the, about the t- I was seeing this guy about the time that the movie came out. The book had come out several years earlier, and the the movie was a big hit. Won Motion Picture of the Year, and Joanne Woodward won an Academy Award for her starring role in that movie. And I remember thinking at the time, I didn't quite see what the big deal was. You see, the movie was about this woman who had three distinct personalities. And I'm thinking, you know, if I could get mine down to three. (laughs) um, You see, I'm like Paul. I, I have these committees and conventions that regularly convene in my head. And they discuss and they vote and they argue and they fuss and they fight. And I just uh, listen most of the time. Sometimes, you know, I raise my hand to vote and they never pay any attention to me. Um, But I didn't tell the doctor about that because I didn't want a book about me. Um, I didn't want a book called The 700 Faces of Bill, you know. I eventually got out of college and I ended up in a... Another town in North Georgia, and I went to work in a radio uh, station there, and uh, I, I was a news director and had a, a news show and did the morning show. And uh, I met a beautiful girl, and, and uh, very short order, fell in love with her. And I thought, you know, what I need to do is clean up my act and, 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 and walk straight and become a responsible adult, uh, And especially if I wanted this woman in my life. But, you know, after about four dates, I found out I didn't need to do any of that because that woman liked drinking as much as I did. A lot of the behavior that I would go through, people uh, would say, Oh, I don't pay any attention, Bill. He's just gone into his second childhood early. Well, that's not true because, you see, I never had the first childhood. That scared little boy didn't really have a childhood. Uh, So, you know, I just saw it as having my first childhood late. Most people looked at me and just said, He's just a nut. 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 Eventually, uh, after a few months, my wife and I got engaged, and a few months after that, we got married, and um, and, and we were off and running. Um, and, and we joined a club there, and we we we'd go to the club every night, and we would drink dinner, and then we would uh, stay there and close the club up at about one or two o'clock in the morning and then go home and pass out and get up the next morning and go to work. Now. Most people get up and they go in they got a little bit of a hangover or had a rough night. Nobody knows it but the person next door or across the hall or whatever. But you see, I had to sign a radio station on air at 6 o'clock in the morning and be cheerful. If you want to know what hell is, hell is trying to be cheerful at 6 o'clock in the morning when your mouth tastes like the bottom of a birdcage and your head feels like the Russian army had done maneuvers on it the night before it was then I first learned how to pray, I'd drape my arm over the microphone after I turned it off and got the first record started, and I'd say, oh, dear God, thank you, this ain't television. (laughs) My radio audiences never knew how many newscasts they heard me do lying flat on my back on the floor. (laughs) Microphone pulled down over my face, (laughs) reading the news. It was the only way I could get the room to quit going boom, 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 boom. (laughs) A lot of crazy things in, 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 in my career. When I was working at, a, at a, uh, a station in Atlanta one time. The news director called me in and said, I've got an assignment for you. Uh, there's a, somebody in town that's downtown uh, at, at a hotel. It's only going to be there a short time. All the other reporters are out on duties. Grab the tape recorder, go down there and do an interview. I said, who am I going to interview? He said, you're going to interview Lyndon Johnson. Oh, you mean the, 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 the uh, of, of the, yeah. And, and, uh, so I grabbed the tape recorder and I started to head down to the hotel downtown. I said, I need a little drink to fortify me for this. <laughs> so I stopped and I had a couple of quick drinks on the way down to the hotel. And then I got down there and had to go through all this stuff with the Secret Service where they frisk you and they check you and they uh, ran what was then primitive like metal detectors over you and you show them ID and, and uh, uh, all of that stuff. I don't think they fingerprinted me, but I think they did everything but that. And uh, and then after that, eventually, I was ushered into this great big suite in this room, and this towering man greets me at the door with his great big hand that just kind of engulfed mine and said, "Come on in, son." And I walked in the door, and you know, I'm I'm saying, "Hey, oh yeah, hi, 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 Mr. President." And he says, "How about a little bourbon?" <laughs> Sounding good to me. He poured him a glass of bourbon and me a glass of bourbon and we sat down and talked. Now, <clears throat> you don't, when you're going to interview the President of the United States, you don't just walk in and sit down and start the interview. You've got, you got to have an interview about what the interview is going to be about. You've got to ask him what is you're going to ask him so he can think about what he's going to say when you ask him with the tape going. That's just the way it works. So we had about three bourbons each while we were having the pre-interview interview. And at one point in that little process, I looked up and realized, good God, this man is drunker than you are.
1: <laughs>
0: but I handled it fine. Everything just went, we started that tape recorder, we rolled that interview, I asked intelligent questions, and he gave me answers. And, uh, and I did fine till I got down to the point in the interview where I asked him a question about his wife, Ladybug. <laughs> Thank God he thought it was funnier than y'all did. <laughs> That's the kind of crazy things I do. I was a nut. My wife and I had a simple life. We We went to work and then went to drink and slept and went to work. And, slept. and one day my wife came home and said, guess what, we're going to have a baby. I mean, we drink all the time, almost, but you know. <laughs> In the next nine months, we talked a lot about, you know, when that baby comes, we need to clean up our act, and we need to become responsible parents. And, 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 and when that baby came, we did just that. We stayed home, and we did, uh, made formula, and we fed and burped and changed diapers and did 2 o'clock feedings. I mean, we were absolutely model parents for, gosh, I don't know, three, four weeks. And then we discovered the great American institution of the babysitter, and we were right back in the bar. I know then, I know today that that was sort of the beginning of the end of that, uh, of, of that marriage because, uh, well, it just was. Uh, I hear a lot of people in this program say that when their marriages fail, that the problem was a problem of communication. And, and that's one thing that I really cannot relate to because my wife and I communicated. Uh, you could ask our neighbors three doors down the street. They'd tell you, Bill and Marlene communicate. They could tell you what we were communicating about. Communication sessions usually fairly simple. Uh, I could hang in there to the best of them until it became apparent that I was on the losing end of the discussion. And then I'd go to plan B. What's plan B? Well, plan B is grab the bottle, storm out the back door, jump in the car, slam the door, peel up the driveway, out of here. I don't have to stay here and listen to this crap. Over and over and over and over again, it happened. I know one Sunday afternoon, we got ready for a discussion. No way in the world I could lose this one. I had all my names, dates, facts, facts, and places all lined up all together. Had them on little index cards. No way I could lose this discussion. Ten minutes in, plan B. I grabbed my bottle, stormed out the back door, jumped in the car, peeled up the driveway, headed out of here, going, don't have to stay here and listen to this crap, just like a hundred other Sunday afternoons. only difference is, this time I still had my pajamas on. <laughs> my wife did what any sweet, loving, caring, thoughtful wife would do. She sent a friend to come get me and bring me home. The only thing wrong with that is the friend she sent happened to be a police captain. <laughs> he found me sitting in the parking lot of the Holiday Inn. I love Holiday Inns. <laughs> Minding my own business, talking to my bottle. And he walked up and tapped on the car window. <laughs> I looked up, knew him immediately. He was nobody. I said, Hey, Harold. He suggested I get out of my car and get into his squad car with him. He'd take me home. And I told him that he could. I said, no, thank you. And um, (laughs) then he started talking about his relative size to my size and about his Marine Corps wrestling medals he had won and about the impact of that billy club hanging on his belt up the side of a human head. And, you know, it started to make sense. I might want to think about going with him. Uh, Drunk I wasn't stupid much. Um, so I got in the car with him, I also wasn't so drunk I knew in about two turns we weren't headed toward my house. About two more turns he pulled into the emergency room parking lot of the local hospital and before I could issue one word of protest he opened that door, had me out of that squad car into that hospital upstairs in a room flat on my back, zip, flat. You will not believe how fast you can get checked in the hospital when you already got your pajamas on. <laughs> It's talking about public relations, you know, guy sitting in the lobby in his pajamas with a vodka bottle in his hand, he just don't look good. I mean, you... Checked out of the hospital a few weeks later, learned anything? No. Drunk before the sun went down. Now the next years after that are somewhat of a blur. Uh, it was along about this time that I started quitting drinking. I'm a little bit like Mark Twain. Mark Twain said it about smoking, but I say it about drinking. I can quit drinking any time I want to. I've done it thousands of times. It's the stay and quit that I couldn't do. Because there are some aspects, I don't know if all of you have made yourselves aware of it or not, but there's some aspects about our disease. For example, booze, bottles, talk. Uh... Now, I never had an ant say anything to me. <laughs> Even when I stomped them, they didn't say a thing. But booze bottles talked to me. I could, I could be in one of my quit modes. Not going to drink, that's it, through, not going to do it. And I'd walk past a cabinet where that liquor bottle was and he'd say, Here I am. Open me up. Nope, not going to do it. Going in the kitchen, get a glass of water, and come back and sit down and drink water. And I hear a little voice coming from the kitchen cabinet. Here, I'm in in here. Don't forget me. Don't forget that I'm in here. Booze bottles just talk to me. Now, you know, not all bottles talk. I've never had a bottle of Del Monte ketchup say a damn word to me. (laughs) But if there's booze in that bottle, it'll talk. That's why I wonder about people when they get sober, they say, oh, we just keep a little around the house for friends when they stop by, right? (laughs) You better watch it. That bottle's going to be talking to you. That's why we don't have it in our house. Not long after this, we did the great American geographical cure that most alcoholics try at one time or another. You see, I didn't know that admonition that people uh, have told me since I came to this wonderful fellowship, and that is that no matter where I go, there I am. And the very thing we were, I was trying to outrun with all of those moves we made, I couldn't possibly escape. And we moved to Atlanta. And, and over the next years, we moved and we moved and we moved. Uh, people asked me, what part of Atlanta have you lived in? I said, all of them. <laughs> and that's a big town. we got three million people down there. But I, I, I couldn't get away from me. And I got involved in a part of the business that I've been in since... Um, about 1972 and it's uh, of the broadcasting business and it involves among other things something called public relations and you see I didn't even know what public relations was I grew up in a little bitty town in North Georgia people didn't have relations in public and and uh, uh, so I didn't know what this public relations stuff was all about but there, there, I did find out a couple of things that I did like I like this thing they called a three martini lunch six was a better number but you know and I like the thing they had in Atlanta called a happy hour. That's where you go in and buy and pay for one drink, and they give you two, sometimes three. It didn't take me long to discover that if you, if you stretch the uh, six-martini lunch a little bit longer, and if you take the happy hour and go a little bit earlier, you could kind of push the two together and not even go back to work in the afternoons. If that's for me. Tell them I'll call them back. Um... My disease also had another aspect of it that I was unaware of back then that I am today, and that is that it provides you with a unique piece of apparel, and that is a set of blinders. And those blinders give you very selective vision. For example, those blinders did not allow me to see that when I didn't come back from one of those long liquid lunches, it suited the people who worked for me just fine. Because while the fellow who came in in the morning was capable of being a pretty nice guy, the one who came back from one of those long liquid lunches was not a very nice person. He was forgetful. He was argumentative. He was judgmental. And at times he was downright mean. But you see, those blinders didn't allow me to see that. Those blinders did not allow me to see by now that my beautiful little blue-eyed, blonde-haired daughter, who by now was five or six years old, did not invite friends over to spend the night anymore. But she never knew when Dad's going to come home in the middle of the night in a drunken rage, smashing furniture, kicking in the screens of television sets, throwing things through plate glass windows. Those blinders did not allow me to see that the only look that was ever in her eyes was one of fear and of hate and of disgust. I'd come home after, after those drunken rages and drag her out of bed at 3 o'clock in the morning screaming and yelling at her and telling her she was left a spot of milk on the kitchen cabinet and she'd go down and clean it up all the time. She's cleaning it up, telling her she's dumb, stupid, clumsy, and every other hateful, mean, horrible thing that would come out of that alcoholic brain. Then I'd go fall into bed and pass out and the next morning wouldn't remember a thing. My wife would fill me in on all of the details. And all the time she's telling me, you broke the television set, you threw a chair through a plate glass window, you did, and I'm standing there saying did not, could not, would not. Of course, I'm saying that as she is pulling my shoe out of the television picture tube. And then I'd go downstairs and in the dining room, sit, sitting, hovering over a bowl of cereal as a little girl, hovering down low, hoping not to be noticed. And I'd go over and I'd say, Karen, you and I need to take a walk. We'd go out walking down the sidewalk and I'd say, sweetie, mom told me what I did last night, dragging you out of the bed and calling your names and making you clean up the kitchen at 3 o'clock in the morning. I don't remember it, but I know I did it and I want to, I want you to know I'm sorry. And I promise you that it will never, never, ever, ever happen again. And those blinders did not allow me to see that there wasn't a flicker of belief in that little girl's eyes. Because, you see, we had taken too many walks. And she had heard too many empty promises, and she wasn't buying it anymore. More and more often by now I wasn't coming home at nights, more and more often waking up in strange beds with strange people in strange places. I was a traveling drunk, I was supposed to travel a lot with my work, but I, I, you know, I do things like go out to Hartsfield International Airport in Atlanta, great big airport, most of you probably if you've ever been anywhere you've gone through it. <coughs> Of course, I'd always get to the airport early, have me a couple of drinks before I get on the plane. I'd go in the bar and sit down and have a couple of drinks. A couple of more drinks. Sometimes, forget to get on the plane. You've heard those commercials that says, Delta is ready when you are? Uh-uh. They'll leave you. So... I did what any drunkard do. I just got on another plane, went somewhere else. <laughs> Called home that night. How's the convention in New York? I don't, I don't know. I'm not in New York. Where are you? I mean, I, I'm in New Orleans. You know how I knew I was in or- New Orleans? Because I got the phone book out of the nightstand drawer in that dumpy little motel and said New Orleans right there on the cover. Traveling drunk. Uh, I didn't like to drink alone. You see, even back then, I knew when I was alone with me, I was in the worst company I could keep. So I would drive all over the city of Atlanta at night looking for the drunk draped over a bar so I could buy around and, and, and get him. Just don't leave me alone. do And if there wasn't anybody in the bar, I'd go sit right in front of where the bartender was washing glasses and doing all that just so I didn't have to be alone. And the bartender would sit there and listen, nod. And, uh, Something occurred to me a few years ago that I, I don't know if any of you have ever thought of this, but I think you know, it, it was a clue for us that, that we missed along the way in our journey to get here. And, and that is, it occurred to me that all the hundreds, maybe thousands of bars that I drank in, I never had a single bartender say to me, you keep coming back and it'll get better. <laughs> See, they, God left little clues all along, but we missed them. The blinders, you know. And 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 uh, I had a bad pattern of late at night. I would end up in um, well, when I was going to those six and eight and ten martini lunches in the happy hours, I did those in fancy places. I mean, nice places, big, thick, thick deep, posh, uh, posh carpeting, and uh, I just talk for a living, you know. <laughs> um, <laughs> And, and, and they'd have a maitre d' at the door with a tuxedo on who talked with a Portuguese accent and knew me by name when I'd walk in the door. And it had a great big bar with a big old thick leather rim on it, so you'd just kind of go pile up in it. And, and, and most of those bars like that I drank in, I could walk in the door. The, mar, uh, the maitre d' would greet me by name, and then I would walk into the bar, and the bartender would say, hello, Bill. And by the time I sat down, he had my drink sitting right there in front of me. Didn't even have to ask for it. And I'd take people in there with me just so they could see the way I was treated in this place. And I'd say, you know what, They know me at that door when I walk in, I don't have to ask for a drink. That bartender knows and he just sets it right there on the bar in front of me. Boy, does that make a statement. Yeah, it makes a statement all right. It's just not the one I thought it was making. But I drank in those fancy places, thought it was classy. That guy in that bar knew that I wanted my vodka served at the absolute optimum temperature of, 31.5 31.5 degrees Fahrenheit. That's the idea. Found out later the ideal temperature for vodka is 109 degrees. That's the temperature under the front seat of my car. <laughs> Fancy places. But late at night, I, in, in, in my search for companionship, I would end up in bars in a street in Atlanta called Stewart Avenue. Now, if you don't know anything about Atlanta, you don't know that Stewart Avenue is, uh, it's not the savoriest part of town, put it that way. And, and uh, the, the people that, that, that drink in there, uh, most of them show up with, with jeans on with great big huge belt buckles and uh, they wore great big hats. And I'd walk in in my little three-piece suit and somehow everybody noticed me. And I would have a few drinks and a few more and a few more and then that other part of my personality would take over and I decided to pick a fight. And I always picked a fight with somebody about three times my size, not smart. And I usually got the crap beat out of me. Uh, I don't think I ever won a single one of those. Well, we don't no, no, I did win one fight. I did win one fight. Uh, this guy was so mad at something I had said, and I don't even know what it was. He followed me out into the parking lot, and we were standing behind my car, and, 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 and he started telling me about how he knew karate, and he knew jujitsu, and he knew all this other stuff, and, uh, and I opened up the trunk, and what he didn't know is that I knew tire tool. <laughs> I got in one lick, lick, jumped in that car, and took off. My wife and I were drifting further and further apart. She was drinking in her places and I was drinking in my places and, uh, and uh, uh, our, our lives were the epitome of unmanageable. And uh, the one who was really losing was the beautiful little blue-eyed, blonde-haired girl, now 10 or 11 years old, home alone or in an apartment in a big city. On the phone dialing bars, is my mom there, is my dad there? The phone would ring and the bartender would say, it's your kid, hand me the phone and I'd say, hi sweetie, Daddy, please come home. I'm scared. Where's your mom? I don't know, Daddy. Please come home. I'm scared. It's always the same. I will, sweetheart. I'll be home just as soon as I have one more drink. And all of you know the rest of that story. Many hours and many drinks later, I would stumble into that apartment, and there, cowering in the corner of the bed was that little girl, tears streaming down her face, terrified, alone. But the blinders were firmly in place. My wife went her way, I went my way. So I never asked where she was going. She didn't ask where I was going. We didn't care. There was no marriage anymore. So one Thursday evening when she left the house and was gone for two or three hours, it didn't occur to me where she was. When she left, I was sitting in my recliner chair with my bottle staring at the television. About three hours later, she came back. I'm still sitting in that same chair holding that same bottle, staring at that same TV, probably still trying to decide whether to turn it on or not. And um, she came and stood in front of me and looked down at me and said, Guess where I've been? And I said, Who gives... Who Who cares? And uh, she did something really weird. She didn't say anything. She flipped a white poker chip into my lap. And I looked down at it, and I looked back at her, and I looked back at it, and I looked back at her, and I said, I don't know where you've been, but if that's all you won, you had a lousy night. <laughs> well, in our part of the country, and I don't know if you do it here, but that little white poker chip with two A's on it, meant that she had gone to Alcoholics Anonymous and surrendered. When well, she told me what it meant, and I went into an absolute blind, perfect rage. I knew there was not a way on the face of this earth that that woman was an alcoholic. She could not possibly be an alcoholic. I mean, you know, if she was an alcoholic, she, it's just not possible. She couldn't be an alcoholic. <coughs> Then stop her. She started going to meetings, going to meetings, going to meetings, going to meetings. Some fool nonsense about 90, 90, and 90 something. I don't know. And, and, and those meetings, you know, she, they, she'd she be gone two or three hours. And I asked her, how long was the meeting? She said, there, an hour. I said, you're gone three. So we go to Coco's and have coffee after the meeting. I said, yeah, right. I kept waiting for the other shoe to fall. I kept waiting for her to say, you need this worse than I do, or you're bigger drunk than I am, or... Didn't do it. Just kept going to meetings and going to meetings and going to meetings and going to meetings and going to meetings. Two or three sometimes on Saturday and Sunday. Uh, oh, yeah. You know, there were little clues left around the house. Like I'd go in the bathroom, lift the toilet seat, and there's how it works taped to the lid. You know. <laughs> All right. Come home late at night. And one of those rare nights when I'd sleep in my own bed and flop down on the bed and run my arm under the pillow like she knew I always would. And, and, uh, there's a piece of paper under there, and I'd pull that piece of paper out and, hello. i pull that little piece of paper out and, and uh, you know, close one eye and look at it. By the way, I got, stop for a second. I, I, I discovered something not long ago when I had my eyes tested. This eye is in excellent shape. I mean, it's got almost 20-20 vision. This one is shot to hell. And, you know, the ophthalmologist couldn't figure it out. And it took me a while to figure out. See, I didn't use this eye for
1: years.
0: (laughs) I drove with one eye. If I had something to read, I'd read. But God is merciful because, see, I've about worn this one out, but i got a new one over here. (laughs) Anyway, I'd look at that little piece of paper and, and you know, study it and focus on it and realize it was that little pamphlet with all those questions in it. i would get to about the third question, and say it's as big as a bunch of crap, I So she kept going to meetings, 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 and I kept waiting for the other shoe to fall and it finally fell. She said, I'm going tonight to pick up a ninety day chip and I'd like for you to be there. Uh uh-uh. uh <laughs> few please, a few tears. A uh, few deals, a few promises, and I said, okay, I'll go in one condition. i go in my car. I ain't going to no cocos for no coffee or no nothing else. I'll go to the meeting, but that's all I'm going to do. Where are we going? She's going to a place called 8111 Club. I said, where's that? I said, it's at 8111 Roswell Road. I said, okay, I'll follow you. So we took off down the road, and I'm behind her. She pulls in the driveway of this pretty little house sitting up on a hill in a grove of trees and winds up the driveway, and I'm driving up the driveway behind her thinking this is really weird because, you see, I'd pass this house hundreds of times on the way home from the bar and every time I'd go by there I'd look up there you know when I look up there and 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 think to myself you know I really ought to get to know the fellow that lives in that house because he obviously has a party every night <laughs> well that night old Bill went to the party I slipped into the back of the room with this little house that had been converted from a home into a little AA clubhouse and I sat down behind the post in the back of the room and witnessed for the next hours the biggest bunch of weirdos I had ever seen in my life. <laughs> they read all that stuff at the beginning of the meeting, and, and about the time they got through with it, there's a guy sitting there doing this, and i mean, he's got to go bad. <laughs> and somebody pointed to him, and he stood up and right out loud told him his name and that he was an alcoholic. And I'm sitting there thinking, I don't think I'd have told that. And if that wasn't enough, he told him he had gotten six DUIs. What do you all call them? DUIs, DWIs? DUI. Okay, drunk driving awards is what I'm talking about. (laughs) And you know what those people in that room did? They busted out laughing. And my mind is saying, what are they laughing for? Don't they know what they are? They're alcoholics. They don't have anything to laugh about. I can tell you today, I thank God every single day of my life for the laughter that we share in these rooms, because I believe there is magic and there is power and there is healing in that laughter, and I like to admonish people wherever I go that if you don't have a home group that laughs a lot, find one that does, because they're magical. I also like to caution people, please do not laugh all the time or they will come get you. Seen that happen. But he didn't compute that night. Next fellow raised his hand and said, I've gotten six DUIs and been arrested for indecent exposure. They came unglued. And I'm thinking, dear God, if they knew some of the stuff that happened to me, I could sound like Richard Pryor. The meeting went on seemed like forever, and finally everybody stood up and grabbed hands and said, the only thing familiar to me that whole hour, and it was the Lord's Prayer, and I couldn't even remember part of that, and I got headed out the door, started across the parking lot, and I got about halfway across that parking lot, and something grabbed me by the shoulder that felt like a steel vise spun me around, and I found myself looking up into the face of a man that was seven foot 11. <laughs> I, know to, I know today he's only six, six, but he looked a lot <laughs> taller that night. <laughs> I also remember him from the meeting, a little different from everybody else. Everybody else says, "My name's John, I'm an alcoholic. My name's Mary, I'm an alcoholic. My name's Sue, I'm an alcoholic. This guy, when they called on him, said, My name's Floyd, and I'm a grateful hillbilly drunk. <laughs> Gimme a break. Well, this guy starts talking to me about drinking moonshine up in the mountains and about his sixth grade education and about getting the DUI driving a school bus. And <laughs> And I'm thinking, God, what is he talking about? Why is he telling me this? I, he don't even know who I am. Found out later he knew exactly who I was because she'd been talking about me in those meetings. <coughs> People come out and get in their cars and leaving. Floyd's going... Bum, 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 bum. Remember, I went in my car now, so I can... My wife comes out, goes, bye, gets in her car and leaves. And it's me and Floyd. And he talks about getting drunk out in the woods in the wintertime and falling down on the ground and his face freezing to the ground. And they had to pour coffee on him to get him up. And I'm not hearing most of this because I'm busy making a deal with God. God, get me. Well, Floyd talked on there for three or four days. I finally got away from him, got in the car, walked in the house at home. My wife started to say something. I said, don't open your mouth. And she didn't. And the roller coaster ride continued. And the loneliness got worse and worse and worse. And the guilt and the pain and the anguish and the isolation got worse and worse and worse. And remember I talked about drinking in those classy, classy bars? They disappeared, folks. There was no class anymore. Let me tell you something. When you wake up in the morning and you look down and you realize there is dew all over your clothes, and you shake your head and blink and realize you are looking out from underneath a bush in a downtown Atlanta city park, and the view before your eyes, are you're looking up the nostrils of a policeman's horse. There is no class in that, let me tell you. There is also no good comeback when he says, what are you doing here? All I can say is, where is here? There is no class when you're pulled from a car, you've planted into a steel post on the side of the road. And you're handcuffed and you're frisked and you're hauled off and... And, and taken to the jail where they put you on that breathalyzer. And all the time I'm protesting, I am not drunk. I've only had two beers. There is no single conceivable way in the world I'm drunk. I just, I'm just not. I'm not. He put me on that breathalyzer thing, my jig, and it registered .28. And I said, that is absolutely impossible. I could not possibly be registering .28 on two beers. The cop agreed with me. <laughs> <laughs> it was the only thing we agreed on. Go to court for a DUI. Drunk. That's not smart. The class was gone. More and more often getting up in the morning looking out to see if your car is there. If it's not, trying to go piece together. I was here and then went and and maybe it's... The only thing worse is looking out in the morning and part of your car is there. (laughs) On the afternoon of July 26, 1982, I came out of a week-long blackout drunk whole week missing when I came out of that blackout drunk I'm sitting in my old recliner chair and I look down and in my left hand there is an empty bottle and in my right hand there is a fully loaded and cocked 22 pistol and I had not remembered picking up either one of them and the thought going through my head was is this all there is is this really all there is because if it is you can have it And through the fog of that hangover on that Monday afternoon at about twilight, there came a voice. The voice of God? Not exactly. The voice of an angel? Mm, Not really. It was the voice of a beautiful, wonderful, lovable, strapping, hillbilly drunk named Floyd. And the words that cut through that fog were simply this. When I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I expected God to open the gates of heaven and let me in. He didn't. But he opened the gates of hell and let me out. And if where I was on the afternoon of July 26, 1982 can be any closer to hell on this earth, I pray that I never know it. And I got out of, out of my chair and I went in the bathroom and I cleaned up as best I could. And I gargled about a half a bottle of Listerine, drank the rest. <laughs> <laughs> got in the car and drove a few miles back to the little 8111 club house on the hill and slid in the back door and sat down behind a post. And I agree with my sponsor when he talks about God having a sense of humor. And about God live and loving for us to laugh, but I think he likes to play little jokes too. Because when I peeked around the front of the room, sitting up there chairing that meeting, sat my wife. She didn't see me until the end of the meeting. When a man got up and explained the chips and he said, This white chip is the surrender chip. It means if you're sick and tired of being sick and tired and want to join our way of life one day at a time. I didn't hear much else in that meeting, but I heard that. And I got up out of that chair, and I took the longest walk I have ever taken in my life to the front of that room, and a man pressed a white poker chip into my trembling palm, and my hand closed around it, and I walked back and sat down. I choose with all my heart to believe that an old Bill Sanders walked to the front of that room that night and died, and that a new one walked away, because by the grace of a loving God and the tender loving care of people like you in rooms like this. I've not had a drink since that night. And I thank God every day of my life for it. I thank Him for the greater miracle is that it's been many, 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 many 24 hours since I've even wanted a drink. That's the miracle. You told me very early on I needed to get a sponsor. thought that's weird. I'm in broadcasting. I've had hundreds of sponsors. Can't, can't, can't do a radio TV show without a sponsor. They said that wasn't the kind of sponsor you were talking about. Told me what it was and and like Keith last night, I decided I was gonna do it scientifically. I started looking around for the sweetest, kindest, roly poliest, white haired old granddaddy I could find. One that would pat me on the head on a daily basis and said you're working the closest thing to a perfect program anybody I've ever seen in my life. You keep doing it your way one day at a time and you'll be president of this outfit one of these days. And I thought I found a guy. I found a, this guy named Doc Crandall. Snow white hair, big roly-bolly dummy, like bigger than mine, and, and, and a big old smile that he wore around all the time. And I asked him to be my sponsor. Biggest mistake I ever made in my life. I don't remember that man ever telling me one thing I wanted to hear. He told me a lot of what I needed to hear. I knew I was in trouble the first day. He said, okay, fine, I'll be your sponsor. Now let's discuss the rules. Rules. <laughs> he said, yeah, first thing you're going to do every morning when you wake up is you're going to roll out of your bed on your knees and you're going to ask God to keep you sober today. And then the last thing you're going to do at night is you're going to sit back down there and get back down there on your knees and you're going to say, thank you. And I said, Doc, I've got to be real honest with you. I said, I grew up going to church. I'm, so, you know, recovering Southern Baptist too. I, 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 every time they opened the church doors, we were there. If they just opened a suite, we'd go in anyway. Uh, but I said, you know, I, prayer's an important thing. I, I understand that. Y'all pray a lot around here, and I, I understand that. I've got to be honest, Doc. I am not comfortable with this knee business. He said, son, I didn't say a damn thing about you being comfortable. <laughs> I said, Doc, <clears throat> then I got real cocky. I said, Doc, people have been telling me this is a program of suggestion. He says, it is. I suggest you do it or get you another sponsor. <laughs> see, that's the kind of sponsor I, I needed in those early days. Because you see, he told me, he said, I've known of, never known of anybody too dumb or too stupid to get sober. But I've known quite a few that were a little too damn smart to get sober. I wanted to know why of everything. Why do I have to do that? why, I don't, I don't, that doesn't make it, why do I need, and he finally reached the point, he said, you do it because I by God said so, that good enough, well, you know, once he explained it that way, I, yeah. <laughs> the first thing he did is he gave me this book, and he said, I want you to take this book home and read the first 165 pages, no, not read, I want you to study them, and after you've studied those first 164 pages of that book, I want you to sit down with that chapter 5, and I want you to look at those steps, and I want you to start thinking about how you can make them work in your life. I thought oh boy I can get into that so I took that book and I uh I stopped at the office supply store on the way home and I got me a couple of legal pads and I got me some highlighters and I got me some sharp pencils and I went home and I cleaned off my desk and I spread it all out and went to work and I flipped open that book and I started reading and I started highlighting and I started underlining and I got to the steps and I you know marked out the ones that didn't have anything to do with me and uh I jotted down a couple I'd thought of that y'all hadn't and and uh I made notes on those legal pads and, and, uh, and about three weeks later I called him and said, Doc, I'm ready to talk. He said, Hot Dog, come on over. And I went over to his house and I plopped down on the sofa and spread it all out on the coffee table and he reared back in his big old uh, recliner chair and he said, lay it on me. And I flipped that book open to chapter five and, and I pointed down there that first step and I said, okay, Doc, looking here at this first step, as I interpret, and that's as far as I got. <laughs> He said, boy, that step don't need your interpreting. It needs your doing. I said, yeah, 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 I, I, I know, Doc, but, but 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 what I think it means is, he said, Bill, look real closely. They wrote it in English. It says exactly what it means. If you'll look even closer at those steps, you'll notice they put little numbers by them so smart college boys like you can follow along. <laughs> God, he was tough. He was a fanatic about this book. I mean, just I, one day at work, I had a personnel problem that I needed some help with. I mean, it just it baffled me. I didn't know, and I got to think. I said, you know, Doc's been in business world a lot longer than I have. I'll go ask him. I got to the meeting early. said, Doc, you got a few minutes. He said, sure, come on, let's talk. We got off the side, and we started uh, uh, talking. He said, what, what, what's going on? I said, Doc, I got a personnel problem working, he discussed with me. Let me lay out the situation. He said, Hold it, let me ask you something. Which step you using on it? I said, what? He said, Which step are you using on this? I said, no, 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 Doc. This ain't got nothing to do with steps. I'm talking about real life stuff. (laughs) And he said, go look again. I went home I got the book open, I opened to the steps and nothing in there about personnel problem. Went back next night and said, Doc, I looked in the book. There ain't nothing in there about personnel problems. Now, let me lay out the situation to you. He said, go look again. And I get in the car driving home thinking, God, that crazy old bastard. I get home, get the book out again, open it up to the steps and start going. There it was. There was the answer. Over and over and over and over again, he sent me back to this book into those steps until one day in the mind of this rather slow thinking alcoholic the little bell went off Bill there is nothing 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 that is going to happen in your life that the answer is in this book and in those steps I believe that with all of my heart and all of my soul and it keeps being proven over and over I don't always see it I don't always see it I have to get the book down and read it and I have to read it on a regular basis because you see thank God bottles aren't the only thing that talks to me this book talks to me I don't know what edition of the big book do y'all have here third you see I have the 26th edition of the big book (laughs) and well it is I have read it from cover to cover 26 times and every time I read it, they have rewritten it. So I have the twenty-sixth edition of the big book. <coughs> and 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 I know they've rewritten it because you see, I I would open it up and I start reading something, and I read I say, God, that was not in there. And the way I know it wasn't in there before is because it's not highlighted. If I had read that, it would have been highlighted. Now there's something over here that's highlighted, I don't know who did that. I, but this, wow, that wasn't in there the last time and they, keep, they just keep rewriting it and, and you know what I know today is God reveals himself to me through this book and through you people when I need it when I'm capable of hearing it when I'm capable of understanding it when I'm capable of using it it is a magic book my sponsor kept me zipping through the steps. I mean, we moved. You know, you didn't, you didn't mess around. I told him one time, made a mistake of saying, you know. He said, "What step are you on I'm just coasting. He said, "Fine, long you know one thing. You don't coast in one direction, down." I heard in a meeting one time we I, we'd kind of worked our own way through step down to step through step three, and and uh, I was sitting in a meeting one time and it was about the the fourth step, and the general topic of the discussion was when do you write a fourth step. And and some people in the meeting were saying you write a four step when you get to it, you'll know when you're ready. You you you'll know when you're ready to write a fourth step. And I, it sounded good to me. So I went to Doc and I said, Doc, they told me in that meeting that I would know when I was ready to write a four step. He said, You damn right, because 'cause I'll tell you. You'll know. I I I looked at that four step and I said, You know, I really I know all this stuff. It's up here. Good God, I lived it. I don't need to write this stuff down. I can just let's just jump on down to this talking part I'm not gonna tell you some of the words doc told me but in essence he said you're gonna write uh, I'm, I'm grateful for having a sponsor over here Paul who, who, who likes to write and 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 with a little crisis I'm dealing with in my life right now he's just reminded me this morning sit down and write I'm going home tonight back to Atlanta and I'm sitting down to write a letter to God about an issue in my life thanks to my sponsor's suggestion but doc kept me moving through those steps um, I, it occurred to me one day that we were just zipping right along on this thing and that we're going to be through the steps here before long and I walked into Doc's favorite trap I said Doc tell me something what do you do when you get through working the steps without, without batting an eye he said you lay real still because you're dead Either way, Doc said a lot of things. You know, when I came in, uh, I had a lot of problems with acceptance. And Doc would send me to that damn page 448 and 449. He'd make me read it out loud every day for a month. And about a month and a half later, I would have forgotten it all, and he'd make me go back every day for a month. I got the point. I said, if I ever read the son, meet the, sun, meet the sun, wrote that, I'm gonna punch his lights out. <laughs> told you, God's got a sense of humor.
1: <laughs>
0: Today he's my sponsor. <sighs> Doc told me a lot of things. He said, if you're ever getting an argument in your head about whether or not you're going to take a drink, you're going to lose. He said, did you hear that? He said, if you get into an argument in your head about whether or not you're going to take a drink, you will lose. You can't win that argument. So when the topic comes up, dismiss it. Turn it over. And I heard that up here, but I didn't hear it in here. And i had been sober a few months and had to make my first business trip out of town, and it happened to be to Washington, D.C. Fortified myself with the meeting, had lunch with my sponsor. Uh, uh, Doc Crandall got on that plane and that plane had not cleared the ground till the committee convened in my head 800 miles from home nobody up there knows you're an Alcoholics Anonymous you could tie one on tonight and time you got home Friday you could have it all out of your system nobody'd ever know yeah you'd know yeah but he ain't gonna tell I mean they're just meeting and talking and yapping and, and going on and I'm just sitting there on the plane of course I'm looking around the plane to see if anybody else is hearing those voices Plane lands at Heart, I mean, at the National Airport, out of the plane, into a cab, headed for a big hotel on, on Capitol Hill. Got out of that cab, walked into that hotel lobby and the meetings. Great big atrium lobby, and I look across the lobby, and my radar spots the bar, and I can hear the tinkling of the glasses, and I can hear the music, and I can hear the laughter. Take me less than ten minutes to check into my hotel room, come back downstairs, and walk over and stand in the doorway of that bar. And I stood there in the doorway of that bar for three, maybe four minutes, while well, that meeting played out in my head and at no time was doc's admonition if you get an argument in your head about whether or not you're going to take a drink you're going to lose and i lost and i walked over and i sat down at the bar and the bartender came stood in front of me looked down smiled and then said something really weird he said hey fella how about a coke it would And he pointed to my lapel and said, I figured by that pin you're wearing, that's probably what you'd want. I had forgotten to take off this damned AA (laughs) pin. He set that Coke down, went down the other end of the bar, served three or four people, came back and stood in front of me. I'm still sitting there staring at that Coke. He smiled again, and he said, you haven't got any business in here, do you? No. <laughs> he said, where you belong is three blocks down the street upstairs over a furniture store. There's a meeting in 20 minutes. Get the hell out of here. I went to that meeting that night, and I did two additional things. I, got in a, I went, walked into a bar, and I thanked an angel in the shape of a bartender for saving my life. He smiled and said, you weren't in as much trouble as you thought you were. When I saw you standing in the door for so long, I thought you were looking for somebody. But when you sat down and I saw the pen and I saw the look on your face, I knew what you were doing and there was no way in hell you were going to get a drink. The other thing I did is I got down on my knees beside a hotel room bed in Washington, D.C. and I said, thank you to God. And I said, if you've gone to this much trouble to keep me sober tonight, I will never test you again and I don't. I don't go in bars because I don't belong in bars. I belong in rooms like this with people like you, people who know who and what I am, people who know how I think. You see, I never fit. I never belonged. I was on the outside looking in until I walked into these rooms with you people, and you said, we understand. You said, we know how you feel, and I knew you knew and I was home and I never found that in a bar my sponsor Doc Crandall pounded that into my head I remember one night in a meeting a youngster was sharing in a a discussion meeting and 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 the the kid said something about after the meeting he kind of let it slip that he and a couple of his friends were going down the street to a bar and I punched the person next to him I said watch Doc you know he always looked like he was asleep but he never missed anything Suddenly he reared up, didn't, didn't even bother to raise it. He said, whoa, 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 whoa. Son, where'd you say you were going? Oh, we're going down here to so-and-so club, but but but, but we're not going to drink, we're, go- we're going to hear the band. Doc said, buy their record. <laughs> Kid said, they hadn't got one. Doc said, then they're not any good. <laughs> See, he didn't let me con myself. In 1985, on November 26, my sponsor Doc went on a 12 step call and never came home. As he and another alcoholic struggled to take a shotgun away from a suicidal young man that Doc had been trying to help get sober, the shotgun accidentally went off and Doc caught the blast full in the stomach. And he died on the way to the hospital. In the late hours of that Tuesday afternoon, I sat in Doc's den and I felt a loneliness come over me that I had not felt in a long, long time. And I was thinking, how can I go on? How can I stay sober without that man by my side who kicked me in the butt when I needed it, who put his arms around my shoulders when I needed it intuitively knew the difference? How can I go on without the man who planted me in those steps, who guided my, my pathway? How can I go on? In the quiet stillness of that evening, the answer came. You'll do it by doing the things he taught you to do and that his sponsor taught him and that his sponsor taught him and that his sponsor taught him all the way back to that fateful spring night in 1935 when the broken-down stockbroker and the has-been doctor sat in that little gatehouse in Akron and said, do you think we might be able to stay sober if we help one another? See, I believe with everything in my soul That God in his infinite and loving and compassionate wisdom in the spring of 1937 or maybe in the winter of uh, uh, 1935 or the winter of 1934 when Bill got sober, looked down and said, the lowly alcoholic has suffered long enough. He's been the outcast of society for long enough. I've got to give him a way out. And what a way he gave us. You know, he could have decreed that we'd be locked away in Cells or, or prisons as many of us should have been probably should have stayed he could have decreed that we'd be put away in colonies like lepers so we couldn't harm anybody anymore or he could have destined that like the young girl with leukemia that Keith spoke of last night or those who are afflicted with a deadly disease of AIDS or cancer or anything else that their lives come to an end But instead he didn't do that with our terminal disease. He opened the door and gave us a way out and what a way. He gave us each other and more love and more laughter and more joy and more happiness than most of us could have ever dreamed of in a hundred lifetimes. And then you'll never convince this alcoholic that he didn't top it off with one thing more. I believe he topped it off with a one-on-one, face-to-face relationship with him that few people on this earth will ever know what a gift what a gift I love this fellowship to me it is not a club it's not an organization it's not a group it is a way of life it is a way of life in our house I can tell you that little lady right back there God gave her the ability to come home in 12-step when she didn't even know what 12-stepping was. She became a walking, talking, breathing big book before she even knew that's what she was doing. And he works through people. I asked my sponsor, Doc, one time I said, do you think God talks, speaks to us through people? He said, who the hell do you think he speaks through frisbees? <coughs> Of course he speaks to us through people. He speaks to me through you. I get on my knees in the morning and I ask for God's will for my life and then I go to a meeting and find out what it is. Or I open this book and I find out what it is. You see, if I don't read this book, I might miss the message he's got for me that day. If I don't go to that meeting, I might miss, Beth, that one important thing that I'm supposed to hear and I'm supposed to come down and put into my life and make a part of my life. I don't know. I I, I try to go to at least one more meeting a week than I need. (laughs) Whatever that is. I love them. That's where my family is. And speaking of family, let me tell you something. This greatest miracle of all in this alcoholic's life is what it did with our family. On December 30th of 1982, on the day divorce papers were to have been signed, Instead, Marlene and I stood before the same minister who had married us 16 years earlier in the presence of family and friends in this (coughs) fellowship. We renewed our vows and we started all over again. And the last 15 years have been fantastic. That woman is my closest friend. She is my buddy. She is my pal. She is my soulmate. We live together. We love together. We work together. She is my administrative assistant in my office. God what a miracle that is. Fifteen years ago, it would have been a homicide if we'd have tried that. (laughs) Now, let me tell you, we still communicate every once in a while. (laughs) But making up is lots more fun than it used to be. I talked about my little daughter and all the walks I took with my little daughter. Well, a few years ago, I took one more walk with her, but this time it was down the aisle of a church. And dear God, did she look like a princess in that long white flowing gown, and I looked just like a penguin in that monkey suit. (laughs) (laughs) And that little girl, we got to the front of the church, and I took her hand, and I placed it into the hand of another man. And she and he turned to face the same minister who had married her mother and me 25 years earlier, and the same minister who had renewed our vows 10 or 12 years before, uh, after that, and they began their life together. And, and I, We love our son-in-law. He was a fine young man. I worried a great deal the first time that we met him. We took he and uh, my, our daughter out to dinner one night, and we walked in a restaurant and sat down, and the first thing he did was to order a beer. Then he sat there and nursed that thing for two hours. <laughs> and I said, son, you ain't never going to make it in my little group drinking like that. <laughs> And he won't but the greatest tears didn't come at the wedding they came at the reception that followed because you see my little girl had said dad I'm gonna have the first dance with Paul but I want to have the second dance with you and I stood beside the dance floor and as I watched as the prince and princess had their first dance together and then their song ended and my little girl came and reached out her hands to me and I looked into her eyes and instead of fear and hate I saw love and I saw respect and then we moved out onto the dance floor and the music began and the words of the song were, did you ever know that you're my hero and everything I'd like to be, I can fly higher than an eagle, you're the wind beneath my wings. Dear God, what a miracle had been worked in the lives of this family that had been ripped and shredded and torn apart by the insidious, unforgiving disease called alcoholism. But God, you people, this book, those steps, and a million prayers had put this family back together again. I can tell you no high I ever had out of any bottle or any pill or any funny cigarette could touch the high that I felt then. Two or three years ago I had a, was sharing at a conference in, up in Northern California Napa Valley, 1992
1: Chardonnay.
0: <laughs> Forget it. But I was sharing at this conference and my daughter who, who works, she's a, a veterinary assistant and she, one time she happened to be off and get to go with me to this conference. And I looked out in this room and there were four, over 4,000 people in this great big meeting hall. But at one point in my talk, 3,999 people disappeared and all I could see was the beautiful face of a blue-eyed, blonde-haired girl on the second floor, the second uh, row, with, with a smile a mile wide on her face and a look in her eyes that said that's my daddy up there. You gave me that. You gave me my life back. You gave me the lives of my family back. Six months ago or so my daughter came and sat down on my lap, she's heavy now, (laughs) but she sat down and put her arms around my neck and she said something so magical. She said, Dad, I just realized something the other day. I'm having a hard time remembering what you and mom used to be like when you're drunk. We're not the only ones that heal. The healing is as contagious as the disease. What a fantastic gift. This thing called sobriety. What a gift. I want to thank Bob and Jeannie, especially and the committee and the Allatines and everyone for a fantastic and wonderful welcoming weekend. Thank you for the opportunity one more time to share a weekend with a bunch of drunks because I can tell you something, I like myself best when I'm with you because you bring out the best in me wherever I go, whatever kind of meeting I go to. So in closing, it could not possibly come as any surprise that I would say to all of you did you ever know you are my heroes? You are everything that I searched my whole life for and ever wanted to be. And I believe with everything in my heart and soul that every single one of us together can soar like eagles because he's the wind beneath our wings. Thank you. God bless you.